passages like this remind us that Matthew was writing primarily to a Jewish audience. They would have been familiar with the Old Testament prophet of Jonah. They would have been familiar with uh, the great city of Nineveh and the fearful Assyrians, that, uh, that country of Nineveh. The, they would have been familiar with the wisdom of Solomon and the queen of Sheba that came from the south to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And no doubt some of you guys are familiar with these narratives from reading your Bibles, but many of you maybe, maybe not so much as these are kind of tucked away in the Old Testament, some of these. And it does sadden me that many Christians go their entire Christian life without the full counsel of God. And when you consider how much of the Bible is the Old Testament, I mean, you're missing out on some two-thirds of the Bible when all you read is the New Testament. And furthermore, um, you know, when a passage like this comes up, that is, its meaning is so rooted in the Old Testament, we realize how much we might be missing out on. <laughs> you know, we're reminded that the Bible didn't start at Christmas time when Jesus came on the scene. No, it started at the beginning. The actual beginning, thousands of years of biblical history came up to this point in their history. So much of the New Testament doesn't even make sense without the context of the old. As you guys have heard me said, probably to the point of you guys are sick of it. There's three rules for interpreting the Bible. Three, and those three words are context, context, context. <laughs> So as the weather gets colder and as the end of the year begins to approach, maybe it's time to start considering, maybe this is going to be the year that I decide I'm going to read the Bible in a year. There's all kinds of plans out there that can help you do it. We here at the church have some materials we can probably help you with. And it only takes about 15 minutes a day when you commit to it. And if it becomes a two-year program for some of you, that's okay too. The point is you read it and we're nourished by the Word of God. And when you come to a scripture like this, it will make it infinitely more understandable. So something to think about for your own betterment. But with all that being said, let's start unpacking this together in verse 38. And then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We're reminded that Jesus is locked in a battle of wits and logic with the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's not going well for the scribes and the Pharisees at this point. Jesus has been quite well uh, cleaning them up in terms of logic. But seemingly in an act of self-defense, they ask for a sign. Essentially saying, why should we believe you, Jesus? Show us a sign. Do some miracle. Wow us. And yet, Jesus has already done plenty of signs and wonders for these people, hasn't he? I mean, surely you don't have to be a Bible scholar to have noticed Jesus has done some miracles just in these first 12 chapters of Matthew. So what gives? Why are they asking for a sign? <laughs> because honestly, Jesus could have healed every person on earth, turned the moon into blood, and they still wouldn't have believed in him. I mean, we, we've been talking the last couple of weeks about this level of hard-heartedness where they can look the Son of God in the face and call him Beelzebub. That's the kind of hard-heartedness that they've had. And so, 
he could have done all the more miracles they wanted. They would only utter more blasphemies against the Son of God. And so let this be a caution to those of you who maybe you know, who keep saying, oh, I just need more evidence. Oh, I'm not sure. I need more proof that Jesus is God or to believe in the Bible. This, this tells me, no, I, I think once you've made your decision about who the Son of God is, you know, if you've already made up your mind, nothing is going to reasonably persuade you when it's a spiritual, hard-hearted Complete rejection, a willing rejection. As Jesus said in Luke 16, we have Moses and the prophets. If that's not enough for you, it won't be enough if a man were to literally raise from the dead. Which us New Testament Christians can claim, by the way. So, But for clarity, Jesus did healing miracles all the time for anyone who would come to him in faith asking for that healing. And out of his abundant compassion, he would heal them and do these signs. But he was not about to perform tricks like some kind of circus dog for these guys. Jesus wasn't about doing a show for the sake of a show or wowing people. He came proclaiming the kingdom of God, not doing a show. And in verse 39, Jesus calls them out and calls them an evil and adulterous generation asking for a sign. This specifically referring to spiritual adultery, although the other kind may have been going on too, who's to say? But they were basically worshiping themselves in their legalism, in their self-righteousness. It was self-exaltation was what their worship had devolved into. And they were in desperate need of repenting of that. That's what Jesus is really getting to the heart at, calling them you know, evil and adulterous. But the evidence Jesus did give them and has given all of us is the sign of Jonah, which he starts talking about in verse 39, where he answered him, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So who was Jonah? Well, the Bible tells us he was one of the minor prophets. And by that, I don't mean unimportant or less important. The message that Jonah brought was just as important as all the prophets that came before him. A message from God, whether long or short, is important. But it was much shorter than others. When we call someone a minor or major prophet, we refer to how much they wrote. Isaiah, for instance, wrote 66 chapters in his book. Jonah wrote four. Both were a very important message, but one of them was much larger than the other, so we divided them into the major and minor prophets. That's, that's all that that means. And here's the one-minute-ish version of what Jonah is about. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, as we read, the great capital of Assyria, to preach a message of repentance to them. Jonah, however, fled in the opposite direction, desiring to have nothing to do with those wicked men, much less extending forgiveness to them. While fleeing, Jonah is thrown overboard from the ship he was fleeing on, swallowed by a great fish. Not necessarily a whale, by the way. It says great fish. 
and was there for three days and three nights until the fish vomited him ashore again. And from there, he conveniently decided to follow God's ways. You would too. He then preaches to Nineveh, the nation which had previously persecuted Israel, and they collectively repented of their sins. Jonah, however, was bitter at their repentance because he hated the Ninevites. He hated the Assyrians and what they had done to him until God revealed his grace to him and he understood. But that, I'm not here to preach through the book of Jonah. We're here to focus on this text. So how on earth is that a sign? Well, there are two types of prophecies in the Old Testament. There, the first one is predictive prophecies. You guys are familiar with this one. We, all, we break this out all the time at Christmas, how the book of Micah predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Or how in Isaiah chapter 7, they, that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. You know, foretelling what were to come in the past, foretelling what would come in the future. That's predictive prophecy. But the second is typical, or a type of Christ, people call it. I prefer to call it prophetic foreshadowing, because that's really what it is. Uh, it, it sounds like I'm about to say something complicated, but trust me, we're, we're all going to be on the same page. <laughs> you see, foreshadowing is a literary device that we see in all kinds of storytelling, books, movies, we see it everywhere. It's when something is revealed early on in the story that hints at something later to come. That's what foreshadowing means. Like if you were to watch an action movie, you know, you, the opening scene has the action star riding in on a motorcycle. And then you don't see it again for most of the rest of the film, but the big chase scene is about to begin. And then the camera pans over to a motorcycle in the corner of the garage, and we all know what's about to happen. That, that's use of foreshadowing, you know, in, uh, in that type of a context. We see that everywhere. We're familiar with that. What happened to Jonah and this great fish in the Old Testament was prophetic foreshadowing of what was later to happen to Jesus Christ. Where the greater prophet of Jesus would be swallowed up, not by a fish, but a grave. And he was in the ground for how long? Three days. Sounds like Jonah, doesn't it? Interesting parallel there. And this is all over the Old Testament. Beautiful parallels between the, what happened to Jesus and what happened to Old Testament prophets. What Jesus did and what Moses did. There's so many beautiful parallels like this all throughout the Old Testament. And it's on purpose. In John 5, Jesus told the Pharisees that they pour over the scriptures because in them they think they have eternal life. But Jesus said, these are they that testify of me. That the Old Testament scriptures testify of this coming Messiah who was to come. And it, it, it's, it's almost like a movie with a twist ending. You guys ever see a movie like that or read a book with a twist ending? Where as soon as you're finished, you just have to watch it again. Because now in light of everything that has been shown to me, it's like, now that I know where it goes... I want to watch it again and see how all the pieces fit and how it led towards that conclusion that I missed the first time. The Bible is just like that. 
It's like a twist ending with Jesus coming foreshadowed through so many things that the Jews to this day still don't pick up on. How Jesus is foreshadowed in the rock that Moses struck in the wilderness. He struck that rock so that the people would not perish in the wilderness. Interesting how salvation came from someone being struck. Only once, not twice, by the way. There's an interesting point in that, but again, I'm for time, I must let that point go. Jesus is foreshadowed in the bronze serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness, where the people were dying from poisonous snake bites in the wilderness. But God told Moses to make a bronze serpent, hold it up on a pole, and anyone who were to look to that pole and and the bronze serpent lifted up would be saved from their poisonous snake bites. Now that sounds like someone else we know, someone else who was also lifted up, not on a pole, but on a cross, and that all who look to that Savior would be saved, not of snake bites, but of sin. Beautiful parallel that Jesus himself cites in John chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus is foreshadowed in Joshua, where Moses typified the law. Where the, where the law could not bring the people into the promised land. But Joshua, whose name, by the way, is the same name as Jesus in the Hebrew, Yahshua, transliterated into English as Jesus, that person could bring the people into the promised land. The law couldn't bring the people in. It could show them the promised land, but it took Jesus or Joshua to bring the people in. I could stand here and do this all day, by the way. <laughs> For mercy's sake, I could, I'll stop there. But, if, it, but let me say, if you're missing Jesus, if you're missing a parallel in whatever passage you are reading in the Old Testament, I don't care what book you're in. If you're missing Jesus, you're missing the point. Something to think about as some of us make that commitment to read through the Old Testament. Therefore, the sign of Jonah would be the sign given to the scribes and Pharisees and indeed to all people throughout all generations that Jesus would die and rise again, leaving a verifiable, open, empty grave in its place. The ultimate sign and proof of Jesus' authority and divinity. But by the way, I'm sure many of you know how mocked the story of Jonah is by today's scholars, (laughs) saying, oh, that's a cute Bible story for kids, but really, a great fish swallowing somebody and them surviving for three days, let's be serious. You hear that all the time if you're looking for it, but yet, my question isn't what the mockers and the scoffers think. My thought is always, what did Jesus think of the scriptures? Because Jesus cites Jonah right here in Matthew 12 as an example of what is about to literally and historically happen to him. Jesus builds his case for what's going to happen to him based off of Jonah. And if Jonah was just a myth and a story, Jesus is just saying, oh yeah, I'm going to die and rise again as an allegory, as a story. Because he's saying, if Jonah isn't true, well, what I'm doing is just going to be a story that will be told for the ages as well. But that's not what we see. Jesus makes his case for his historical and literal resurrection 
on the historical and literal experience with Jonah. And by the way, Jesus cites so much of the Old Testament as that same literal and historical ways, all of the controversial parts. He cites uh, the creation narrative of Genesis 1 and 2. He, uh, the work and life and the miracles of the prophet Elijah, he quotes in Luke chapter 4. And even the controversial prophet Daniel, Jesus frequently draws from. His favorite title for himself was the Son of Man, coming right out of Daniel chapter 7. All the controversial parts that people are scoffing about these days, Jesus has affirmed for us. So that's all that I need to know about how to interpret my Bible, because it's been made clear. They can't both be right, so it's either the pseudo-scholars or Jesus. I don't know about you guys, I know who I believe. I know who's the final authority to me. My mind is made up. Because Jesus is the greater Jonah, as the text will say in a moment. I find it fascinating that Jonah reluctantly obeyed the Father at the end of that story. But Jesus went willingly to the cross, that he was obedient to death, even the death of the cross, Philippians 2 tells us. Jonah was in a fish, Jesus was in the grave. Jonah hated his enemies. But Jesus said to love our enemies, even prayed on the cross for the people who crucified him. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Jonah did no miracles. Jesus did many. Jonah preached a message of judgment for three days. But Jesus preached a message of grace for three years. (laughs) What a beautiful, incredible parallel of how greater Jesus is. I'm going to come back to this thought in a minute, but it's clearly established that Jesus is greater than Jonah. But I must move on before I run out of time. Verse 41. It says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let's actually start with the ending there for a second. Not only is Jesus greater than Jonah, but it says here he's greater than Solomon, the wealthy and wise king. And at the beginning of this chapter, we saw he was greater than the temple, you know, the center of Jewish worship. The three major offices of Jewish life in the Old Testament were the prophets who spoke and taught the word of God, the priests who you could say, who ministered in the temple that Jesus is greater than, and ministered before the Lord, were the intermediary between God and man before our great high priest took that spot. And the king, who ruled over the executive affairs of the country. It's fascinating to me that here Jesus is greater than the prophet, he was greater than the temple or the priestly system, and he's greater than Solomon, the great wealthy wise king. 
He purposely picked those three major offices and said he was greater than all of them. And he's the only one who's ever held all of them to be the prophet of God, speaking forth and teaching the word of God, who now serves as our great high priest, you know, serve, uh, making intercession for us before the Father. And of course, Jesus, if we teach the, even the little kids from a young age that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The only one to hold all of them. That's a 15-part series of messages right there, so we'll just have to leave that as a footnote for now. But Jesus is greater than all of them in that regard. The full fulfillment of each of those offices. But as we turn our attention to the people listed in this narrative, you couldn't have imagined a more wicked and evil and brutal society than the Ninevites and the Assyrian country they came from. A people so brutal, they invented the crucifixion. The Romans later perfected it, but it started with the Ninevites. Brutal, terrifying people. And yet these people found grace in the eyes of God and will stand confidently on that last day because they repented at the teaching of Jonah. Fascinating. And with Nineveh and the Assyrians to the north, uh, then contrasted with the queen of the south, uh, referred to in the books of Kings as the queen of Sheba. The location not being perfectly defined, it's probably somewhere in the Arabia region. People speculate maybe Yemen or Ethiopia, somewhere in that region perhaps. But the point is this pagan Gentile traveled an immense distance to hear of the things of God that were proclaimed to her about, that were taking place during the kingdom of Solomon. And she, le- she arrived as a pagan woman, but she left there obviously changed, amazed by the things that she was revealed to her in speaking with Solomon. <laughs> From the Ninevites to the north to the queen of the south, these are some of the most unlikely people you would expect to see on the other side of eternity. These pagans from far away, these brutal and far-off people, way far away from Jewish culture. But yet the Bible assures us we will see them on the other side. I mean, that is a beautiful picture of grace. Because they will be there, not because they were able to outdo the evil that they had accomplished, You know, making up for their bad deeds by doing good deeds. That's not how it works. That would be especially hard for the Ninevites to do. How do you outdo the evil of starting crucifixion? No, they they too had to be saved by grace. That they believed God and that was accounted to them as righteousness as Genesis 15 and Romans chapter 4 tell us, that they were saved the same way Abraham, Isaac, and hopefully you are saved by believing in the one God had promised to send from the earliest chapters of Genesis, believing in the Lamb of God who would come to take away the sins of the world. And by, be- and by believing in that coming one, turning from our sins in an act of repentance, these people were saved. 
and is the only way that we, too, can be saved. It's true of everybody here. Even though our sins before God are just as dark, and we are just as disqualified from entering heaven as those Ninevites, we have full assurance of where we're going to be. That we will stand confident with the Assyrians on one side of us and with the Queen of the South to the other side of us when we enter into glory, dressed in His righteousness alone, to faultless stand before the throne of God. It's that beautiful and familiar hymn comes to mind. The question is, have we repented the same way they have? Or do we cling to our own righteousness as the scribes and Pharisees did? Make no mistake, they're not in judgment because their sins are worse than ours. The only difference between us and them prayerfully is that we have repented and trusted in the Savior where they clung to their self-righteousness and trusted in themselves. It's the only difference between me and any other sinner in this world. Because let me be real with you guys. We are going to be surprised by who is going to be in heaven when we get to the other side. (laughs) We will find ourselves rejoicing before the throne of God in perfect righteousness and holiness with people who have done some wicked and horrible things on this side of eternity. People who are serving life sentences in prison right now, we will be rejoicing in heaven alongside them. No more righteous than they. Because they will be changed from the inside out by Jesus Christ, by the same gospel that has redeemed me. There is no difference. But also, we'll be surprised by who's not in heaven. You know, our memories aren't going to get wiped out when we enter heaven. (laughs) We'll recognize each other. There's incidents of people who come back from the other side in the scriptures and people recognize them. And I'd like to believe that after a few millennia, we'll decide to have a church picnic together. Just like old times, right? (laughs) And as we're organizing, we'll have some ideas together. We'll have Elaine give everybody a ride, of course by whatever mode of transportation they have. And we'll have other people do the sound. We'll have other people do this or that or whatever it looks like in the glories of heaven. And then someone will say, oh yeah, let's go, let's get Greg. Let's have him set up whatever. You know, he used to love doing that. And slowly we'll be looking around at each other. I'm like, wait a minute. Greg's not here. But wait a minute, I thought... Well, this can't be. Didn't Greg sing in the choir? Didn't he hold all of these titles at this church, serve in committees, and do these great things at the church? And yet he's not there. Now, by the way, I chose the name Greg for my example because I couldn't remember anybody at this church named Greg. (laughs) So if I missed somebody, I am not targeting anyone specifically. (laughs) And I repent in sackcloth and ashes if I'm wrong. But my point is, we'll perhaps be surprised someday that the people we would most expect to be there, the people who just seemed so excited, the people who seemed to be so vibrant, maybe didn't actually believe these things in their heart. 
they merely had an outward relationship with God. They, had, they did all the outward things right, but inwardly they were just as lost as the Ninevites before the preaching of Jonah. Just as lost as we were before we believed from the heart the gospel. And likewise, it will not be the well-to-do, the kings, the politicians, the scholars, or even necessarily, by the way, the pastors who will be there on the other side. We might be surprised by some pastors that we don't find on the other side. But only those who have this childlike faith that we affirm That simple trust in what Jesus has done for us. To simply read the Bible, believe the gospel, and obey what it says, and trust in Christ. To to simply say, as we've said forever, to trust and obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. I'll close with the words of another hymn that we know that echoes that thought. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Rock of ages, cleft from me, let me hide myself in thee. Let that be the cry of our hearts this morning. May we respond to the sign of the prophet Jonah and find, our, and find ourselves one day rejoicing before the throne of heaven with Ninevites, with the queen of the south, and with all kinds of sinners just like me before the throne of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.